0: We are going to read chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. This has been a section that we're working through. Basically, Paul's attempt to uh, stir up political controversy in the 21st century church. I think that's why he wrote this chapter. I think. You'll see why. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, he's speaking to Titus and what he will teach to the elders. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, note, that's not him saying teach sound doctrine. He's already said that. He's saying teach lifestyles, patterns of behavior that Christians do that accord with sound doctrine, that are applications of sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self control Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, that they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May God bless us as we bend our knee in submission to his word this morning. So yes, this is one of those weeks that makes you very glad you're not a preacher. Two weeks ago, we, we discussed our manhood and what a biblical call to manhood looks like. Last week we covered uh, biblical womanhood and really clarified that's not a printing error, that didn't pass away in the 20th century. They are the, the, the callings of men and women that we stand by today at, at this church because we believe in God's good design. And then today we're going to look at, now some of us have uh, uh, versions here that say bond servants, maybe you're reading an original Greek, I tip my hat to you, yours will say doulos, and you'll tell me later how I pronounce that wrong. But. Uh, In essence, it's talking about slavery and bond servants. Now, we could do, the amount of sermons I went read this week, engaged in this week, and basically what they do is go, look, slavery, New Testament, is basically like an employment. That's our modern day equivalent. So let's do a sermon on employers and employers, employees and employers. "That's, That's very handy. And that's fair. That's fair application. But I know that as soon as a, as a preacher starts using that word slavery, as soon as you read that in the Bible, a thousand misconceptions, a thousand good questions, and a thousand biblical texts might come to mind that you, you want dealt with. And, and as much as it would be easier for me to just sort of jump in and look at, uh, you know, bypass all of those questions, and you're right, we're going to look at a lot of the Bible today that isn't in Titus 2, but by my calling as a preacher is to give to you not just the bare minimum application, but more, an entire Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, a, a thorough knowledge of the Bible and what it speaks to, so that, as Paul said in First Thessalonians, you would not be ignorant of these things. A couple of reasons why I think this will be helpful for us today, and I need to convince you of this because we'll get halfway through and you'll be convinced this is, is not fun, <clears throat> Why should we study this? Because it will help you as an apologist. As you give reasons for and a defense for the faith, as you're commanded to do in 1 Peter 3, you will have a reasonable, logical, biblical, and Old Testament inclusive defense to give for the faith. How many of us will, will, we can defend a lot of what's going on in the New Testament resurrection. I've heard that spoken about, you know, justification by faith. I've heard that argumented. You turn to the Leviticus pages, I'm tapping out. I'm I'm a theological liberal when it comes to that. That's all crazy. I don't know what to make sense of. And I've uh, read many, many, uh, in fact, just saw hundreds of videos this week, not that I watched them, but saw them, scrolling through them, of atheists just picking apart these passages, going to town on them and showing Christians that you believe in an immoral, evil God, whose Old Testament laws were as evil as the other nations. And basically they're proving that, or attempting to prove that the Christian God is no more evolved than the other gods. He was always just a figment of evil man's imagination. We're going to look at that today. I want you to have a, a broad spectrum worldview of what the scripture speaks of. And also, in a, in a day like today, not that it's altogether unique, but in a day like today, there are many, many questions that r- rise up around the terms of, uh, around the ideas of racism and historical slavery. You know, we're now on this side of history that came after the, the 17th, 18th, 19th century slave trade between Europe and Africa and, of course, the Americas. So we're going to jump in and just, just speak to it in detail so that we would be equipped in the world that we live in. <clears throat> so let's. Let's turn as as we, so I'll just reread the passage here speaking to the slaves and then we're going to jump into some Old Testament. So verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is what is at stake. The adorning, the, the showing, the framing, the upholding of the doctrine of God we say we believe. We've been looking at, at our, our series here, the Sound Doctrine, Good Works, if we have great doctrine and we believe every point of the London Baptist Confession, but that, is, that doctrine is upheld by a life that is evil, immoral, weak, ineffectual in this life that we live, then we are doing a disservice to the doctrine that we proclaim. And so it is so important to have a, a a a basic and sorry a foundational and in practice worldview. So I'm going to now look at the Old Testament. I've just picked the most controversial ones I could find because that's the ones our opponents go to. In the Old Testament, many many Christians will say there was no such thing as slavery. That's a myth, my friend. There was slavery in the Old Testament. Now, one, ad- one approach I've seen is to sort of stop using the word slavery, because that's an unhelpful word because of our history. Let's use the word servitude. Now, while I understand the, the intention behind that, I'm going to keep using the word slavery so that we keep hearing it in our mind, so that we stop being apologetic for that word, and we, we reclaim that word, like we did a couple of weeks ago with the word patriarchy. I know what that's been taken and assumed to mean, and now we've been told as Christians, don't use that word, it's evil. No. I see that coming out of the pages of Scripture. Let's take it back, redefine it, and defend it biblically. So we're going to do the same with slavery. God allowed for slavery in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 21, though, we see this. And this is the big one, why why the the idea of slavery is so opposed to so many of us because of our historical uh, placement. We think of slavery as that going into a foreign land Stealing men and women out of their families, cultures, and tribes. Putting them in shackles and bringing them to a foreign land. Exodus 21 verse 16 says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So right from the outset, we have an understanding that whatever Old Testament slavery was, it was not like that that European stealing and enslavery of, uh, let's say, the the, the Western Africans. It was nothing like that because anyone found in possession, you didn't even have to do the stealing. You just received stolen goods and put him to work in your plantation. The Bible says you've done the equivalent of take a life, your life will be taken. Or Deuteronomy 24 verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, so this is now specifically to their own tribes, if he takes him and treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you must purge the evil from your midst. So we we already have a better foundation. If slavery then is not stealing and putting to work what was Old Testament slavery, What this was, was uh, more a a chosen, willing, subjection of self to a richer, maybe family member, maybe uh, uh, extended family member, or just another person of the tribe of Israel. God's, God's nation of Israel, somebody falls into poverty, they had the choice, they could starve and die, option one, bad, Or they could bring themselves to a brother Israelite and say, I contract myself to you for a period of time at half wage. I'll live with you. You'll feed me. You'll house me. You'll protect me and my family. But I will work for you doing whatever you need around the place, in the marketplace, in the home, whatever you need. I'm here to serve you, to bring myself up out of poverty. There was, as we've said before, there was no free welfare system in Israel. Because God designed the nation and he only has good ideas. You work, you receive money. Yet you're not in the same position as the rich. Okay, we're okay with that. God's sovereign. I'm born into my situations as he, de- he designs. But there was no free handouts. There was working. So <clears throat> there was... Uh, um, so, so one po- portion of this is that it was only for a limited period this is not perpetual slavery where somebody is sold and then can never get out of it. In Israel we read this, if your brother a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you 6 years and in the 7th year you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free, th- this is this is interesting. When you let him go free from you, don't let him go empty-handed, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. Send him home with flock of sheep, with food, and with wine. You shall furnish him liberally, as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall also give to him. So so now we're already seeing it wasn't eternal slavery, but chosen subjection to pay off a debt. I'm not going to make the case that it would be pleasant, awesome, preferable to be a slave. That's not the case. I'm also not going to make the case that, th- that these laws were never broken. Of course they were. Just for this very thing, the, some of the uh, points in, uh, in Israel's history, they came under judgment from God and people released their slaves. The judgment passed. They re-enslaved them. This, of course, was abused. But we're not talking about the sinfulness of man, but the laws of God. <clears throat> Furthermore, uh, it says, at the end of six years... Okay, so you've served your time, you've got your, your, your pay back, you're able to at least go out and make things work for yourself on a, on a mean income. Deuteronomy 15, verse 16 and 17 says, But if the, if the slave says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, pause already, again, extremely different from any kind of illegal, immoral, God-hating slavery we saw in recent centuries from Europe and the Americas, right? Already different. No one's saying, I just don't want to go free. Here's my opportunity, but this plantation rocks. Not happening. Those men were abused. The women were refused rights, but this They said, I don't want to go. I love you. Half pay is better than full pay elsewhere. Your family is amazing. I'm well off with you. Verse 17. Then you shall take an awl and you shall put it through his ear into the door. Old style ear piercing. And he shall be your slave forever and to your female slave you shall do the same. Right? So, so no branding with hot iron, no, no putting into shackles, but an ear-piercing, saying this person then has voluntarily said they want to be my perpetual employee, or Bible word, slave. We can already see the, the extreme differences here. Now, one of the other things we'll read is, what Old Testament slavery did was it separated, split, and destroyed families. It would take men and take them away from their wives and kick the husband out and leave the women and children in slavery. They'll go to Exodus chapter 21 verses 4 to 6. Exodus chapter 21 verses 4 to 6. And here's what it says. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Right? That's, that, real quick clarify. When it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave... It's meaning when you enter into a contract of servitude between yourself and that slave, that's what it means by buy, not in a slave trade, then he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears, uh, sorry, the wife and her children shall be her masters and the slave shall go out alone." So you see here where people start making arguments for breaking down and splitting families. But you have to understand this being the law is in the contract beginning the slavery. Some young guy comes into enslavement, is starting to pay off his debt and bring back his own trade and skills. And then his master offers him halfway through his servitude. I've got a, a, a woman here whos who I'm probably going to put to work in my place. She, she has owed money. I'm going to bring her on as a servant or slave. You can marry her if you want. I give you permission to that. Now, the man has a decision. This woman is amazing, beautiful, and wonderful. I want to marry her. But I'm going to be finished my slavery three and a half years before she finishes hers. You don't get to just marry a woman, and then when you leave, her debt is forgotten. It was, it was fair. So he knew you have a decision. If you marry this woman, you have to stay in slavery with her until she's finished. It's fair. If, however, you brought in your own wife, you get your own wife back when you... No, she has been your, whole, your wife this whole time. Let's make that clear. You get to go out with her. And then, uh, so it goes on to say though, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and and he shall be his slave forever. So that they know the contract, they agree to it, and and the families stay together. Let's also say this. if, and, and he, again, such an enormous difference, uh, you can go back and look, I might even post something this week that has all these references on there if you want to uh, uh, have these as, as a quick go-to. But in Deuteronomy 23, verse 15, there was provisions for what would happen if a slave breaking out of his contract runs away from his master. You can imagine what would happen. This is Old Testament. What would happen? What would they do to him? They would probably string him up. They would make a, a, a public flagellation. Surely something big would happen to him if he's broken this contract, Old Testament style. Here's what happened. You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. He shall, you shall not wrong him. You weren't even allowed to take a runaway slave back to the master. What's the assumption here? You don't leave a good situation. He's run because there's abuse that is not being seen to by the, the city elders. There's abuse here. He leaves, you don't return him for a reward. He's a lost dog. You take him in, you house him, protect him, and you be his brother. I hope you've been liberated here from all of the, 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 the wrong views that you've probably been, been slammed with and made to feel ashamed of the Bible's use of the word slavery. <clears throat> Furthermore, the mistreatment of, of slaves was punished. This is one of the most common arguments. We're always told, you know, the slavery allowed men to just own human beings and treat them like property. Let's look at the verses they use. Uh, the, sorry, the, the verses they, uh, uh, they abuse and miss. Exodus chapter 20, 21, I believe it is, 26 and seven says this: "When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye." If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth." Right now now, this is not limited to eye and tooth, right? What happens if he chops off your arm? Sorry, not in the code, doesn't apply no, no, we know eye and tooth is code in the Old Testament for whatever, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the, in in other words, whatever you inflict, you must pay back, right? There there must be equal measurements. You injure this man, destroy his workability into the future, you lose your enslavement of this man. The contract is broken. He All of his debt to you is forgotten. It goes further and says uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 15, It tells them that they ought to treat people, uh, let me find this one, they ought to treat their slaves carefully and lovingly because they themselves were slaves also in Egypt. So Deuteronomy 15 verse 15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. So they they were told to treat fairly because of their own history of enslavement in Egypt. Let me read this, though. This is unheard of in the ancient world. Already, the things we've been going through makes Israelite slavery the best form of slavery if you were in the ancient world. You would run to Israel if you could, if you had to be a slave anyway. It says this, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. The, the, the death penalty. All laws between men and man apply between master and slave. You, you injure, you lose him. You oppress him, you will be punished. You kill him, you will die. It, it's so what we know as Christians. All men and women created in the image of God are equal. We are not the same. Some will be masters, some slaves, some kings, some foot washers and servants, but all equal. We're okay with that. However, it goes on, and this is the part that is so often abused. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his owing or his fee or his money. What, the, what they usually point at this, and maybe you just you just moved in your seat. This one, this one's got him. Slavery's bad. Listen to this. If though he beats him and he survives a day or two and then dies, no, no avenging, right? Because the slave is his money. But they usually take that, and maybe you hear that and you, you interpret that to mean, slave belongs to him, it's his property, he wants to beat someone within an inch of death and they perish two days later, that's his, that's his duty, that's fine. We've already seen that was to be punished. But what it's saying is, if there was a, if, now it's assuming there's some kind of need to get physical with this slave, maybe it was mistreatment of family members, maybe it was thievery, whatever it is, where there was harsh treatment and then there was sickness to the point of nearly dying, the, 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 uh, the, pr- the practice was that the master would be taking care of the slave. He's forking out medical bills. He's housing him. He's losing the work that is not being done. He's looking after somebody who is as a family member in his household, such to the point that when he dies, the assumption is, you did not seek first-degree murder with intention to kill this man. You, you have sought to maintain his life, and that is why it says the slave was his owing. In other words, he's been indebted because of what has happened. He's the one who's been forking out money for this slave, and now it's his loss that the slave is dead. So the assumption is intention. Now of course, where there was questions, Israel had a court. you would take it to the court. You could have rights and hearings, and there would be judgment over this slave owner if it turns out he was intentional in the death of his servant. So, so whatever false Worldly, ungodly, and unbiblical views, we're we're told that the Bible perpetuated. We see here fair, just, equal treatment. It's actually a grace to have a provision in the law that would help the impoverished people to come out and climb out of their poverty. I hope that you see that. So that's Old Testament. And where it would have been uh, uh, abused, of course, we see it's a willing servitude. It's an alternative to starving It's a contract that only lasts for six years at half wage, and there's laws protecting the treatment of those people. Now, there's a slight difference if if they've purchased somebody who is actually a prisoner of war or somebody from outside of Israel, then those people are still protected from harsh treatment, but they're not freed after six years. They're actually able to be passed on to the kids and passed on to the grandkids. Those slaves become the property of the family because the alternative was death you put to death if you're an enemy of Israel. So that too was a grace. Anyway, we're gonna keep on going. <clears throat> what about the New Testament? Right? Now it's the age of grace. Now all of God's laws are, you know, God agrees. Sorry for the Old Testament, I apologize, I'll do better this time. And he sends us Jesus and He doesn't make any rules. Right? That's what happens. I need we need something that's the opposite of Amen. No, Pastor, no, that's not the case. But What we do realize is that what came from Christ was not a a theocratic nation with laws like Israel was. We see that we as Christians in the church are a, a spiritual nation. We are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Take a look around this room. We don't all look the same. We don't eat the same food, have the same languages, cultures, and heritage. Thank the Lord for that. The mosaic of of the church's uh, uh, multicultural background is embraced, and that is what makes us so beautiful. That is what shows Jesus to be so glorious as not just the Savior of Jews, not just the Savior of rich white or or poor uh, Asian or anything, but the Savior of all people. Bringing us together in this family saying, you know what your ancestors did to mine? Yep. You know what your brother did to mine? You know how we're in the marketplace and I'm your slave at work? Remember that? We're brothers. We love Jesus. We're equals. That's the church. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. New Testament slavery was not biblical slavery. It was Roman slavery, which of course will have differences. So in Roman slavery, the slaves and, and there's estimations that anywhere between 30 and 50 percent of the entire Roman Empire were slaves, to some degree or another. Slaves had a spectrum on how they were treated. Some of them were wrecked, they were brutally treated. They were killed, and there was no punishment on the master for murdering their slaves. There was often handing them into sexual prostitution. However, others were treated like family members. Others were given uh, positions of honor in the household. Some of them did hard labor. Some of them did high-skilled trade. Some of them were bookkeepers and tutors. Some of them were lawyers and physicians and doctors. Others were galley slaves and uh, did very, very hard work. In the Roman times, there was multiple ways to become a slave. Number one was through war. As Rome marched through, took your nation, your city, to be uh, one of their vassal states, Uh, at one point Julius Caesar took an area of of, of land and sold instantly 53,000 people into slavery and they were shipped off across the empire. So it could be war. Now while there would be some specifics differently, that was similar to the Old Testament. Instead of killing them all, promise peace, send them to work among the empire. Another version of, another way you could become a slave in Roman times was through man-stealing, as we've discussed. That somebody would come, they would take you from your home, kidnap you off the streets, maybe from a faraway land. You'll be taken and made to be obedient to a family. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 speaks to this. It's speaking of all those who are uh, lawless, disobedient, and godless. And it says this, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers or man-stealers, perjurers, liars, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So yes, the New Testament is clear in condemning the sin that was going on in the culture of the day of man-stealing. Let that be very clear. But <clears throat> there was other, uh, similar to the Old Testament, there was sections of people in Roman slavery who were there under contract for certain periods until they paid off their debts. This was indentured servitude. Others, though, were born into slavery, as we saw in the Old Testament, also because their fathers were indentured servants, or their their fathers were slaves who were stolen. Whatever it be, there was multiple ways to come into slavery, and up to fifty percent of the vast empire were slaves. Now Now we ask, Christianity came in, the apostles went far and wide preaching Jesus Christ. What happened? What what was the the apostolic declaration over this master-slave relationship? You might assume one way or the other. You might think if you were an apostle, if you were moral, if you were back then, if you were right in the Bible, what would you say to that practice? Well, to the masters, Paul tells them, let's... I've got Colossians chapter 4 here, verse 1, that you might want to write down or or look at. Um, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Masters, treat your slaves fairly and justly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. No one's ultimately free. You've all got masters who tell you what to do. So if authority is your problem, too bad. We're all under authority. But if you think that you're, you're the highest authority, masters, you make a rule unto yourself wrong. You are a lawmaker in heaven. We see this reiterated in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Ephesians 6, 5, Paul again says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. But then look at verse 9. Verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. In the church, there was abusive, threatening Christian masters. Paul says, In the presence of all, while with the slaves sitting there in the same pews, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both them, their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Reminder. Your God is on a throne, he has a bigger rod than you, bigger army than you, a worse punishment than you. And if you mistreat a brother, you will be disciplined. That's his engagement. That's countercultural. That would be offensive in the day to speak of masters in that way. And yet in the church it was commonplace. But we saw here how Paul also speaks to the slaves. I'm re- read verse 5, 6, 7. Slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That's offensive, isn't it? You know, even giving an imagery of Christ like a slave owner. Although Paul calls us and himself slaves of Christ all of the time. Well, not by the way of eye service, verse 6, as people pleases, right, just doing the right thing when he walks into the room. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Again, ultimately, your master is in heaven, not on earth. Verse 8 Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, not from your earthly master, they'll underpay you, they'll mistreat you, but from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. That that, you know, they they receive back free uh, abundantly for their obedience. So, we'll also see in in Titus 2, and that's where we landed this morning. Titus 2, they were told, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, it is then because we've heard this argument, right? This sounds familiar. We remember the plantation owners and the slave traders and those white Englishmen that would go into Africa and tell the slaves, you know, this life is short. This life is short and eternity is coming. Believe in Jesus and be a good little slave. Your heaven will be great, but this earth will be hard. Our earth is great, uh, but you'll have more rewards in heaven. Just be okay with being enslaved and abused. That was a misuse and abuse of Scripture, and those men are under judgment for it. What we see rather is that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's okay if you're enslaved. It's okay if you're not free. We do not all have to be in the same position in life. However, he says, verse 21 of chapter 7, were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, make avail yourself Of the opportunity right of course you'll have more opportunities more freedoms more liberty to preach the gospel live your own life be more uh, liberal with your giving if you're not a slave pursue that but if not in God's sovereignty hold fast to all these other realities and trust that Lord it is not the end of your dignity Now, we saw saw this even more specifically. Now, you might go and just have a listen to good sermons by trusted preachers on the book of Philemon, which is a book to a slave owner. In fact, it's to a Christian slave owner. It's the very next book after Titus. To a Christian slave owner owner who Paul converted. Here's the story. Uh, uh, Philemon was converted by Paul. Philemon owns a slave named Onesimus. He's not a Christian Onesimus steals from his master, breaks his, maybe he was a contract, maybe he was a prisoner of war, maybe he was a slave-traded man. Who knows? But, but, but uh, what he did was steal, run, he goes to uh, the, the big city, and who does he run into? Some hick named Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus, and Onesimus is converted. He doesn't know that his new pastor is very good mates with his old master. So here he is, he's working with Paul, he's laboring with him, he's serving him, he's, he's being great. And then Paul, uh, in conversation we have to assume, it came to his knowledge who his old master was. How he actually happened to, got, to get free from that. And then it's, it's uh, bad news for Onesimus. Not really, Paul says to Onesimus, you, you have wronged your former master, now he's your brother, you need to make things right. Paul writes back to Philemon and says to him, I'm sending your former slave, but I'm not sending him like he left you. Now he's not a slave. Now he's a brother. Receive him as such. And he requests, it would be mature, it would be Christian to to release him from slavery because because he is now free and much more dignified to you than than just he was in in the former status. But he does not command it. In fact, he leaves very free that if Philemon has, has need for this laborer, there was work to, to, in his economy and to supply for his family, he needed that work done, then he can receive him back as a slave, but treat him better, treat him nicer, forgive him. And Paul even says, if he stole anything from you, charge it to me, I'll pay it all. Now, into the, that context, there is a few questions that I want to ask. Because... <clears throat> We often assume if there was any, uh, 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 well, one of the questions will be if in the New Testament time, why did God not completely condemn and destroy the practice of slave owning? Like in Philemon, perfect opportunity. He did not command that it is an unchristian thing to own a slave. I think this is where it's going to get really difficult. I've reviewed these notes over and over again through the week and uh, get a little bit controversial. So let's have some fun. Amen. You with me? Okay. (laughs) All right. Number one question, how can slaves, as told in Titus, how can slaves adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? That, that's, that should be our, this is really our uh, application of, of practice. We're told in verse 9, be submissive to your masters. Now, this means that you're not somebody who's always pushing against authority. Right? Authority is not a problem, authority is God-given. Some guy has more authority than you in the workplace, or if we think back to slavery, you just don't like being told what to do, I'm sorry. The the Israelites were in enslavement. Jesus is a a slave to the will of God. Jesus now calls us his slaves. We're all under authority. Stop kicking against that. That's really what the fifth commandment speaks to, of the ten commandments. Honor your father and mother. You can't do that. You'll do nothing right. Respect authority. Be honorable beneath it. They are to be, these servants, to be well-pleasing. Seek the smile of your master. That will be good for you, pleasant for them. And honoring of a contract, if there is one. Uh, not argumentative, again, not pushing back against authority. Not pilfering. This means they're not, you're not working, and while he's getting you to wash the silver, you're popping a few spoons into the pockets. While you're counting his money, it's one for him and one for me. That's dishonorable. That's breaking. Now, if you hate slavery, servant, he might be saying, if you hate slavery because it's unjust... The way you bring justice into the situation is not by being more unjust. Right? Do not pilfer. You might say, well, he pilfered me. Do not return evil to evil. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they do, God, the doctrine of God is adorned. So this is to us who are employees, to us who really wish we weren't in the status we were in, we'd love the office, we'd love the company car, we'd love the CEO position, or in the New Testament, you'd love to be out of this position you're in, work hard, please your masters, honour the contract, trust God, and if possible, promote. If possible, Up-skill, up-educate, get greater freedom that is always going to be more helpful for you. But that's the command to us today, to them back in the Old Testament. Even if they're they're brutal masters, you continue to honor, you continue to please, you continue to serve well. Now, if it was so common, right, now one of my arguments is that I think we're so opposed to this word slavery is because we're in such a, a, a cushioned, blessed, it's God's grace, but a very cushioned time of history. you lived in any other country, really before the last 150 years, you're probably going to be a lot more familiar with slavery. History is, and mankind is, more barbaric than we really want to be comfortable with. We're Calvinists. We don't mind saying that man is totally depraved, history is totally depraved. Let's not whitewash history and pretend it was all pretty colorful. Uh, Sorry, pretty pretty, uh, uh, polite it was not. But... If it's so common, right, if slavery is so common, how can we be without it today, you might ask? How come, well, we're just proving wrong this, this whole idea that any kind of slavery is needed for a working economy. Not true. Not true. The way that Israel had it, Rome had it, we still have many forms of it today. If you have ever, I don't know, signed on to a contract uh, with the Australian Defence Force, you're going to go and maybe you'll be learn to be a mechanic. Maybe you'll become an officer uh, over a few years of training. And you are bound to them 13, 10, 5, 6, 20 years to repay them for their training and for all the food they gave to you. You, you are contracted to that. You run away. You're not sent a farewell letter. You're sent a, a repo man to bring you back to the Defense Force base. That's a, a military contract. You are not a free man. Very similar to old... Old times, also apprenticeships. Hey, speaking of half wage from before, right? Apprenticeships. I signed on to, and, and it's a little bit more liberal now, but 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 in the in the in the sense that you might come, you say, "I want to be, be a uh, learn your trade. I want to do your job. Can you train me? You don't have to pay me much, but I'll come and I'll learn from you. And I'm signed on to a contract for four years. That that's a, another version of how this might look. Or if you've got a mortgage. You've got a mortgage, you're you're not a free man. You can't leave the country if you've got three or four owing mortgages that you're not paying. You must pay those. And so we see versions of this economic slavery uh, among us today. But of course, with all the added uh, pleasures that we have, we don't have to live in the household of the one we owe because they have our our address and bank details. Anyway, but number three, number three, here's where it's going to, Let's just do it. Number three, how should we think of Christian heroes who in the past have owned slaves? Take a deep breath. Christian heroes who have owned slaves or promoted or defended the slave trade that was in America and Europe. We might think of men such as uh, uh, George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards. What should we think of those people? Let's say, first of all, they are, in those acts, Sinners. I'm not going to justify them and say, well, we're all sinners and we all make mistakes. No, knowingly, they were guilty. in guilty ignorance. They either received or defended the receiving of stolen men. That was a death penalty criminal offense in the Old Testament. It should have been preached against as loudly and clearly as they preached against anything else. They had men in England and others in America witnessing to them saying this is evil, and it continued on. I would not and I will not whitewash their sins simply because I agree with their doctrine and agree with their gospel and love their books. But I'm also not, and here's point two, I'm also not going to say that there's no possibility they were Christians because of the evil they did. If we look back on them without any grace, without the awareness, look, there are blind spots. There is guilt. There is cultural, maybe financial things that sway good and godly men's minds. We don't justify that. Jesus justified them on the cross, but he died for the sin of slave owning. We look back at that with, uh, with grace because, friends, in 200 years' time, we have to think, how will people look on to me and our generation if they have zero grace for us? All these Christians allowing and going to church happy. Well, millions of b- babies have been slaughtered in the last few decades in abortion. We just sort of tip that. I know, I don't want to be a one-issue voter. There's more important things. The economy matters. Borders matter. Blood's on our hands. Will we, we, we be looked at with, with, as, with the same amount of grace as we want to look back without on, on, on the slave owners? Let's, let's at least be gracious because... Otherwise, we become proud and make our own mistakes. Instead, let's ask ourselves, what blind spots do we have to not repeat their mistakes? I just struggle with this. Even about, I, I think of like John Owen, one of my favorite theologians, who was who an army chaplain in, in the Lord Protector of England, Oliver Cromwell's army, as they went in and committed near genocide to the Catholics in Ireland. Just bloodshed. And and here's John Owen there with them, not not protesting, not standing far off, but but witnessing as a chaplain to these men. I don't know what he said to them all, but he didn't make a big noise about it. What do we do with that? I seek to not repeat his mistakes. That's what I do. We learn, we self-assess. Number four, what should we think of races who have enslaved people in the past? What should we think of other races who have enslaved people in the past? So, for example, maybe, maybe we look back and we see great American or European enslavement of Africans and say, how should we then think of and treat white Americans, white Europeans? But we need to uh, very honestly, carefully, gently, and boldly put a pause on that, say, well, how far are we going to go back? Go back to the 14, 13, 1200s when it was the Arabs who were enslaving Europeans Okay, well, what about a little bit further back where we had the Asians coming and enslaving the North Africans and South Europeans? So Asians, whites, Easterners, they're all gone. But we need a mystery. Maybe we need to get reparations and take from them what they owe to our ancestors. Or, or maybe we'll go just back a little uh, forward into history, 1300s. And what about when, when the Western Africans were going up and the Northern Africans were going into Europe and stealing white people and selling them? I want to say this very clearly. If you're a Christian, your greatest solidarity, your greatest loyalty is to other Christians. You have, you, you, we do not erase or put uh, uh, specs on that ignore race. I love that I have African, Asian, and, and Islander brothers and sisters with me from, from the Middle East, from North America, wherever. That is glorious. We don't ignore that, but it's not my first fealty. It's Christian. You're a brother before you're from some other ethnicity. Your, your grandfather's sins against maybe my grandfather are not primary. Christ's blood on you and me binding us is what is primary. So we don't look at other, other races today and, and hold against them sins of the past because that's every single race. Let me just get rid of that word race. There's one human race ethnicities we can use or tribes of people colors number five, uh, why didn't Paul condemn the practice outright and demand the freedom of all slaves? first of all with 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 an economy built on this indentured servitude and slavery Christianity would have in an instant become a political revolution rather than a gospel of salvation for all people it would have been the overturning of the culture and not not just the culture, but the entire economy of the known world. If the gospel was slavery is sin, slaves are liberated when they're Christians, and masters get rid of slavery, would have destroyed the very empire which enabled the spread of the gospel. Now, is economy more important than human life? No. But this feeds into <clears throat> number two, uh, number six. What is the relationship between gospel and politics? in today and, and this uh, applying to the first century today there is sort of two main mistakes which come from the same problem people will say we shouldn't get involved in politics and society and culture we should just preach the gospel don't seek to change laws and governments we should just preach the gospel you got people over here who say but the gospel is changing laws it's the social gospel you free somebody from poverty you're doing Jesus work that's the height of the work of the church Pre, uh, uh, so therefore, we should preach social change. Now, what both of these mindsets foolishly do not realize is they think the gospel is powerless. Do you see that? One party says, I don't want to change the world, I'll just preach the gospel. The other party says, I want to change the world, I need to do more than preach the gospel. What they don't realize is that this ball they're throwing around in their hand and one person saying, it's not, uh, I'm not going to do world change. I'm just going to play with this ball. And the other team saying, this ball is not going to be useful. I need to change the world. What they don't realize is that the ball has a pin in the top of it. It's a grenade. You throw that, it explodes. It's powerful. What, what both parties mistakenly say is the gospel is not the means to a redeemed and changed culture and world. If you think you can go into a cemetery and just revive a few hundred people and the culture of the cemetery won't change, you've got a problem. Or if you think that the means of reviving them is building houses, you've got a problem. Look at what Paul's solution to this is in the very next verse. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The good news to slaves and to those who are enslaved to sin is that Jesus has come. The gospel is true. God ripped open heaven, came up of his throne and served as a slave, Philippians 2 tells us, to bring sinners into life. The ultimate problem is not political. The ultimate problem, the reason there is a political problem, is because there's a sin and heart problem. Therefore, if you think we need to change culture and and cultural sins by changing the laws, you're foolish. You don't realize that Jesus does what laws can never do. Jesus does what political change can never do. That is to break the connection between man and sin. He changes hearts, which, which laws cannot do. He comes in, empowers men, raises them from the dead, and when that happens to enough people culture begins to change this is what brought an end to Roman slavery this is what brought an end to 18th century slavery the preaching of the gospel so also it's so foolish to say just preach the gospel and nothing will change we're just in church the gospel you're preaching if it doesn't blow anything up in men's hearts it doesn't raise them from the dead it's not the gospel I read in scripture this gospel is the means to bring about cultural change though changing of the law is not our ultimate goal it's resurrecting men to life the the greatest problem is not that there is a relationship between master and slave Paul cared about that, it wasn't ultimate the problem was between that master and his master sin you break those shackles the slave-master relationship changes you break those shackles, culture changes. You go around and liberate 30 million slaves, ultimately nothing changes. They all still go to hell. They just go there through different sins. So today I I want to say to you, whether you are, let me just make sure there's nothing else here we need to cover. If you are a a person who has been opposed to the Bible, maybe you just think you're more moral, you have better ideas and the 21st century has evolved past it. Maybe you're somebody who has, who has known much about the Bible. You've been a kid coming to church, you're coming here, you're sitting here, but you know you have not experienced this Titus 2.11, grace of God appearing, raising you to new life. Maybe you're, you've been calling yourself a Christian, but you have not been trained to righteousness, starting in how you think and how you live. Maybe you're an employer who is harsh with your employees because you love the feeling of power. Maybe you're an employee who steals, who pilfers, who starts division in the workplace. To every sinner who comes under the the, the umbrella of what Paul says in verse 11, all people, to every sinner the call comes, repent. Your sins will condemn you. The ultimate problem is God's wrath against you, and it has been absorbed in Jesus Christ. That is your only hope of salvation. That is your ultimate hope of salvation. And it will, when we preach it correctly, change this world in its captivity to sin trust that preach that pray for that expect that let's pray father god i thank you so much for people that are hungry for the word of god and and are so patient to sit through a a lengthy exposition like this but lord we thank you for your grace that has helped us to unpack a lot Uh, that's such an important topic especially today but I pray, God, that you would bring to us an understanding of the glory of the gospel, not that ignores our sins, not that ignores our maybe cultural sins and political problems, but that gives us hope that those can be fixed. And even if they're not, we are saved. The gospel goes on. Jesus is enthroned. I pray, God, that you would bring the loss to salvation today, that their their minds would be broken, their knees would be bent, and they would confess that Jesus is the Lord. I will be his slave from now till forever. He will be my Savior and Lord. Lord, for those of us who name you, who know you, may we rejoice in you. May we have a greater loyalty to you and your word than the culture and their feelings. Lord, may we rejoice in, in all that the word has to say to us. And may we adorn this doctrine well by living it out. Glorify your son today as we now sing songs of praise and thanks and triumph and victory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.